You know, Miles, I think people tend to discount the impact Cameron Hodge has had on the Marvel Universe. Really, Jay? I mean, Inferno, Archangel, that was not subtle stuff. Well, sure, there's all of that, but what about his critical contributions to fashion? The tiny round glasses? I'm pretty sure he didn't introduce those. Well, no, but he was the first anti-mutant agitator to become a disembodied cyborg head. Was... was that a thing a lot of them did? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was all the rage for years. Lang, uh, William Stryker... The minister from God Loves, Man Kills? That's the one. Oh, and of course, Bastion. Who's Bastion? Okay, remember when Nimrod went through the Siege Perilous? Uh, Yeah, one of several times he got logic beaten in a fight with the X-Men. Right, well, Nimrod came out, an apparently human dude with no memory, and a friendly local adopted him and named him Sebastian. Bastion for short. Adopting a violent anti-mutant murder bot seems like a very bad idea. Oh, well, he wasn't violently anti-mutant or murdery yet at the time. The Siege Perilous had wiped his memory, remember? But you just said he was a villain. A disembodied head villain at that. Well, he was decapitated and radicalized later, if not necessarily in that order. By remembering his former life? By television. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 263 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the most extreme teens of all. We are doing an X-Force episode. I love X-Force episodes. I thought we were going to talk about Tony Hawk, because, you know... Hawk Talk. Oh, man. Okay, from now on, our podcast is going to be about about Tony Hawk in terms of his real-life skating and his video game skating. And wait a minute, there was one Tony Hawk game where you could play as Spider-Man, so it all ties together. Okay, but did did he stack... Did he did he sit on the shoulders of other skateboarders to get a, a better view of the terrain? Well, I wasn't that familiar with skateboarding culture or celebrities, but I'm going to say yes. Sold. Okay, so, uh, we'll come back to Tony Hawk for, like, the last 45 minutes of the episode, but we should at least briefly touch on X-Force. Ugh, fine. Specifically, let's start by touching on what they've been touching on lately, which, god, that just sounds dirtier every time I say it. Miles, no, 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 we're not, we're not going there. Okay, well, instead, let's talk about what they've been up to. They are, as we mentioned before, everyone's favorite team of extreme teens. Including Cable and Domino, the oldest teenagers of them all. They really are. Oh, man. Actually, surprisingly easy to picture Cable as a teenager. Not just because Teenage Cable is a current character in the Marvel Universe, but it's just like big, hulking Grandpa Cable, but like with some pogs, because it was the 90s. Did teenagers use pogs? I thought that was more of an elementary schooler thing. I don't know. I was a teenager and I had some pogs. I mean, I didn't play with them. I just sort of looked at them. Same. Anyway, all of these teens of various ages just got done with a crossover. That crossover was Child's Play, in which X-Force teamed up with fellow Super 20-somethings written by Fabian Seza, the New Warriors, to defeat the Upstarts. Finally. The two teams also teamed up with the other surviving New Mutants and Hellions, namely Karma, Magma, Empath, and a Native American psychic archer who went by Moonstar, and whose identity was truly a mystery. For full effect, you have to imagine this said by Ron Howard, but her identity was not a mystery. Anyway, when all of that stuff started, X-Force's Cannonball and Boom Boom, okay, fine, Boomer, but I'm still gonna call her Boom Boom, had been on vacation in Kentucky visiting Cannonball's family. Including Sam's sister Paige, who used both her teenage pluck, and her nascent mutant powers, which at this point are some sort of ambiguous shape-shifting, to help defeat Games Master and save the day. Speaking of Cannonball, he's apparently one of a small group of immortal mutants called the Externals, and is the only one of that crowd who doesn't totally suck. Man, they are awful. 
Thankfully, it'll all be retconned away later, but for now... Wait, they're gonna make Cannonball suck? Uh, no, they'll just make him not an external. But for now, we're knee-deep in immortal ponytailed jerks. Wait, did they ever actually retcon it away or just quietly stop mentioning it? Oh yeah, Celine shows up and she's like, Cannonball, you're not an external. I gotta go. And then he's like, but I died that one time? Okay, fine, whatever. I mean, it's the X-Men. They're fine. So, we'll cover the rest of the background as we go, because this is X-Force, and their only speed is extreme. They cannot drive 55. That just implies that they're real slow. Or real fast. Or real slow, or real fast, with no middle ground. Their, their car just jumps straight from third to fifth gear. Anyway, that takes us to X-Force number 34, Guns and Poses, which makes me smile every time I read it in my head or aloud. Yeah, that's a pretty charming title. This is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by John Holdridge and Harry Candelario, and colored by Marie Javins. And I really appreciate this subtitle on page one. A Tale of Walking Weapons and Emotional Triggers. That could be the subtitle for Nicieza's entire run on X-Force. Miles, that could be the subtitle for the entire X-Line. Legit. Now, before we dive into this, I, I would like to to call out uh, Holdridge and Candelario here, because one or both of them very clearly mistook Richter for Gambit for the entirety of this in the next issue. Right, yeah, I didn't notice myself, but you mentioned that Richter's eyes are very specifically Gambit's eyes. Yeah, no, his scleras are, are blacked in exactly the way gambits are, and his 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 irises are still colored the, the appropriate color. They're brown, they're not red, but it's really, really noticeable. And um he's got his his face is very, very gambity at this point. Um Daniel draws him in a very gambity way, and the inking just really exemplifies that sort of how angular it is. He's got that perpetual kind of three-day beard. Um generally looks like he's about to do something really sleazy. Dare only be one gambit. The world not be able to handle more than one. And I think that's for the best. Oh, the neckerchief might be um, a thing too. Like they're they're dressing in a vaguely similar style these days. Neckerchiefs be very very sensual. Okay. So this story opens right after the Young Hunt, which is you know the plot of the Child's Play crossover, gets finished and it opens with the mysterious Moonstar taking off her mask. And yeah, it's. It's Daniel Moonstar. It's Mirage. We all knew that, except for some reason for a very young me who wasn't so sure. Surprised? No tentacles coming out of my face or nothing? Danny, that's your arms you're thinking of. Arms turn into tentacles in the Marvel Universe, not faces. Although I guess Callisto did have tentacles shoot out of her eye patch one time in some alternate universe, I think. That's, I think that's just Ultimate Callisto. I think she just has eye tentacles. Eye tentacles. Okay, so those are your options. Arm tentacles or specifically eye tentacles. You can't have them coming out of your entire face. Your eyes are in your face. Eye tentacles are technically face tentacles. Well, right, but it's a matter of degree. You know, eyes are only part of the face. Anyway, tentacular math aside, Marie Javins, the colorist, seems to be going back and forth over these few pages on whether Moonstar's outfit is a super skimpy one-piece bathing suit over, like, a skin-tight bodysuit or just a super skimpy one-piece bathing suit. The rest of her body goes from being colored a sort of deep pink to a relatively reasonable skin tone from one panel to the next. I mean, in Javins' defense, there's nothing about this design that really makes any sense. As far as I can tell, Danny got her costume by mugging a Spider-Woman in an, ep- an issue of Heavy Metal. Yeah, it's not good, but I love Mirage enough that I'll give her a pass on almost anything she does. So, uh, Danny, do what you gotta do. And she's got a good reason this time, which is a sort of good reason. I, I realized when I was writing this up that she's she's technically working with the MLF because she's undercover for S.H.I.E.L.D., which means she's become both a cop and a terrorist, arguably the two worst career paths at once. Oh, yeah, that's... That's pretty awful. And the MLF, of course, is the Mutant Liberation Front. They're X-Force's terrorist evil counterparts. And S.H.I.E.L.D. is, well, S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, a bunch of jerk spy cops. Uh, For for disambiguation, this is the MLF about whom Tom Lair did not write a song. I mean, that we know of. Maybe it was in code. 
Back in the kitchen, Cable and Domino are talking to Paige Guthrie, who's still hanging out here after the Child's Play crossover, and they're telling her she needs to go home, and she says, no way. She needs training. She wants to learn to use her mutant powers to help the world. And Cable's like, dude, I ain't got time. And she's like, dude, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about Professor Xavier. And I know there's not really a class going on right now, but do you ever think about the fact that that might just be because nobody has enrolled lately? Because you kidnapped the entire school yeah there is that but we have so much groundwork being laid here for generation x and i love it i love baby overachiever page who just really wants to be an x-man do it right like this is the kid who goes into middle school with her full like college and career course mapped out she is terrific i adore her and i also adore that apparently enormous sandwiches have become cables like a cable motif now you know raise your hand if you saw that one coming because i definitely did not man i want a sandwich i'm hungry i ran this morning cable can i have a sandwich sorry miles these sandwiches are i don't know something battle the future thing sad i look i just took a really big bite out of this one are you sure you want it i have future germs oh cable cooties i guess not Meanwhile, outside, Magma and Empath are also both still here, and Magma's in the process of breaking up with Empath. It actually had a, I don't want to call it a healthy relationship, but a less unhealthy than it could be relationship for a while. But as she found out in New Warriors number 31, Empath for a long time had been keeping up the illusion that Nova Roma was really a lost Roman colony, as opposed to what it apparently really was, according to Nicieza, which is a big illusion created by Selene to convince, to convince a bunch of kidnapped tourists that they were ancient Roman. So, according to Nicieza, Magma is really Alison Crestmere, a British student who had lost her memory, and she's like, I gotta go find my family, and... You, you know, perpetuated this illusion, even if you thought it was for my own good, so I don't want to be with you anymore, dude. Now, the Alison Crestmere thing is going to be re-retconned away, um, as, as a lot of Nicias' changes tend to be, which is a shame. Um, I, I have mixed feelings about it in this case, because was, was there a reason Celine was doing that? Was it just like a massive dick move? I think she just thought it would be fun. I think they think it sounds cool. Yeah. And Empath, as usual, is Manuel de la Rocha, the most dramatic possible hellion. And he says, you were my last chance for redemption, and now I'm going to go super evil, and it's all your fault, and nobody understands me, and I'm going to leave. Wow, this dude anticipated a lot of the worst guys on the internet by several decades. Ugh, he seriously did. So, Magma, after she gets a ride from Warpath and Siren to England, we're not going to see her again until an X-Force issue in 1999. Empath, we're not going to see until 2003 when he's part of X-Corporation. Good. Right? Karma, who uh, is in this issue technically but has no lines and just sort of disappears between panels, yeah, she'll show up again in 1997 in the Beast miniseries where her plot about looking for her siblings actually kind of gets resolved, weirdly. She's also going to get to go to Burning Man. I'm actually really looking forward to uh, getting to that arc of X-Force. I've only read some of it, and it looks delightful. The one where she has two girlfriends, and everyone thinks that it's, she's just saying it because they're her friends, but no, Shan has two girlfriends at Burning Man. Shatterstar comes in, meanwhile, to bring Richter to the television and tells Richter in Spanish that this is because of something about his family. Shatterstar has taught himself Spanish from watching TV so that he and Richter can tell each other's secrets in a language no one around them speaks. I love Shatterstar's take on this. I thought it would allow us to communicate, if necessary, in ways the others would not understand, be it our enemies in the midst of battle or our friends when the topics of conversation are of a highly personal nature. There are no slash goggles necessary here. Like, I don't know if Nicieza intended this to be uh, subtexty, but God it is. Okay, whatever their relationship was intended to be, the fact that Shatterstar taught himself Spanish from TV so he and Richter could tell each other's secrets is really good. Shatty buns, you're the best. God damn it. 
So anyway, what's going on on the television is that there's a report saying that Richter's uncle and cousin were injured in a police shootout. Richter's family, as has been alluded to in the past, are gun runners, and Richter is not a fan of them at all. There's a reason he never went home after X Factor rescued him way, way, way back in the day from the right. I mean, there are probably a number of reasons, but this is definitely one of them. And I gotta say, I I can't remember whether we talked about this at FlameCon or not, but it's come up multiple times in multiple conversations that Richter's homecoming and the context of his leaving home and her, sort of his gradual, I can't be part of this realization is, and, and the way he goes back even to an extent, um, can read very, 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 very much as, as sort of the queer kid who just sort of left home to go do his own thing or was kicked out and is coming back to a potentially hostile family. Yeah, and at this point, Richard was very specifically identifying as straight, but I think that's still absolutely a valid read, and that certainly makes a lot of sense, especially in light of his later life. Yeah. Richter goes and thinks about his past, which of course means we get a nice sepia flashback, and yeah, he was being groomed to join in with the family business, with gun running, and it was kind of an abusive, shitty family situation. Like, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of joking threats, there was a lot of the understanding that violence was going to be part of this, there was a lot of fear, like, the reason Richter was so scared early on, you get the impression it wasn't just because he got kidnapped by terrifying anti-mutant bigots, but also just because fear was kind of his default state when he was young. Yeah, he is the kid who was gentle and loved to read and was born into a world where those were not valued traits and where specifically the way that those the other traits were cultivated was pretty violent and awful. Yeah, seriously. Well, Shatterstar does convince Richter, or Richter convinces himself, to go back to Mexico to see if his family's doing okay, and accompanying Richter are Cable and Domino. Domino, yes, okay, she's very competent, she can be charismatic when she needs to, but Cable, not only is Cable Cable, he looks exactly like the person who killed Richter's dad. That's the reason Richter hated Cable for so long, and Richter's entire family was there when Strife, who looks just like Cable, killed one of their own. Cable, what are you thinking? I mean, he's Cable. He's thinking that guns are his friends, and maybe these nice people will show him some of his friends. Oh, jeez. Well, so Richter goes in to reconcile with his family, and Cable and Domino wait outside, and of course one of the family members sees Cable and is like, dude, we're gonna get revenge on you, and starts opening fire on him yeah and he's 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 got a sort of you know the richters always pay their debts line to which cable rejoins if that were the case then julio's father would never have been killed in the first place i'm trying to think of characters who are worse at de-escalation than cable and and i just i got nothing maybe feral Maybe. Like, Cable could have said, no, it wasn't me that killed your family member, and I'm sorry that happened. But instead, he's basically saying, yeah, well, I bet he deserved it. No, he's not even saying, I bet he deserved it. He's just saying, he deserved it, as if he were the one who had killed him. Cable's come a long way. I mean, everybody messes up occasionally. He's still emotionally available Cable, so, you know, this is just a little step backward. I mean, there's a lot of guns involved. So Richter sees that this is going on and face palms and breaks up the fight with his earthquake powers. And the captioning here is a little too on the nose, maybe. It sort of turns this into a very special episode. But at the same time, it's kind of a cool point. We've seen Richter use his power before, and he basically makes uh, finger guns with his two hands together to do it. His power, his weapon, which he has always held out with such cockiness, hands held tight, fingers pointed like a gun, squeezing a trigger inside his conflicted soul. And after breaking up that fight, Richter goes to tell off his family and to refuse to help them get further revenge with further gunplay. And as he's leaving, he sees a couple of little kids playing pretend guns, doing the whole pew-pew-pew, pointing their hands like guns. And he stops them and tells them, Take your hand shaped like a gun. Put your chin on your thumb and your finger on your temple, and think about doing something else. The kids respond to this exactly the way you'd expect, which is by looking at him funny and going back to playing guns. 
Yeah, he talks about how he's going to make his brain his new weapon. He suggests the kids do the same. So this is very much very special episode dialogue, but I kind of dig it. I kind of dig Richter talking about how his brain's going to be his weapon from now on. Like, this is a guy, this is a kid who grew up wanting nothing more than to be nothing like his shitty violent family, and now he's on X-Force. Of all the possible X-Teams he could end up on, he's on fucking X-Force, the most violent one, and he has to grapple with that, and I think that's kind of a cool way to look at a character that hasn't gotten a ton of development beyond his amazing fashion sense. You know, something else that I think this really highlights well as a character development moment is that... So, I love Richter. I think he's a great character. One of the things I love about him is he is qualitatively uncool. Like... Richter wants to be smooth and cool, and he is not, and he is never going to be. And this is, I feel like, the first moment of him really embracing and leaning into that. I know, he's such an awesome, sort of semi-not-really-pacifistic nerd, and he's great, and he's delightful, and I'm so glad that he gets to be happy later, at least sometimes. I, I really love Angry Punk Richter. I really like every iteration of Richter. He is a neat character. He totally is. But he's not really in the next story, so let's talk about, well, a couple of issues together. Now, this is this is the bit where we remember that the, the center of this team is in fact Cable, which means it's time for our pre-contracted time travel bullshit. And that comes in X-Force 35 and 36, Beg Tomorrow and Genocidal Tendencies, both written by Fabian Nezeza and penciled by Tony Daniel. 35 is inked by John Holridge, Harry Candelario, Kevin Conrad, Joe Rubenstein, Keith Champagne, and Dan Green, colored by Carlos Lopez, Scott Marshall, and Michael Thomas. Number 36 is inked by Kevin Conrad and Joe Rubenstein and colored by Marie Javins. Number 35 has six inkers and three colorists. What happened? The 90s. The 90s happened. <sighs> now, we open with Shatterstar and Domino doing their best to break into Hannigan Electronics, a division of strong industries. And they are... Like every single X-Force mission, it starts with them talking about how they're going to be stealthy, stealthy and then not being stealthy. I love this, though. I love that Domino says they're going to have to crawl through the air ducts like worms, and Shatterstar's response is so perfectly Shatterstar. Fine. But make the analogy to that of a snake, Domino. Call me a cobra, poised to strike. I will, Shatterstar. I will. But if it's poised to strike, it's not going to be able to slither through the, the air ducts. Well, maybe, like, it's poised, and then it's going to strike so hard that it just sails through the air ducts. Okay, so slight tension And just, here. like, hits the far wall or just shoots out of a duct? That's extremely funny. It would be great, but yeah, so slight <laughs> tangent. So, uh, in working in IT, I've run cables through, you know, various walls and crawl spaces and stuff, and I worked with a guy once who swore by using a Nerf crossbow to fire cables across, like, distances that would be hard to run them by hand, so he'd just, like, tie a couple Ethernet cables to a Nerf dart and just shoot this, like, bright orange and yellow crossbow through somebody's ceiling, and it actually worked really well from what he said. Did did you did he ever actually do it? Did you did you get to see this in action? I never got to see it in action, and in retrospect, that's very disappointing. I mean, I would definitely maybe go for some proof of concept there. No, I remember this guy. I totally believe that he would do that, but I want to see it. Shatterstar accidentally trips over what I assumed would be a security system, but is actually the invisible tripwire that opens the door to the secret lab, because this is the worst designed secret lab ever. Just, this is not how you do traps. This is, this is, this is the literal opposite of a security system. Maybe they're really concerned with hospitality. Like, they figure that if somebody comes in trying to break in, maybe it's like Odin and they need to be nice to him or else he'll smite them. Why not just label the secret door instead of putting up a tripwire, then? Yeah, science rules, I guess. All right, but what do we have for our guests behind door number one? Well, Jay, we have Martin Henry Strong in a tank. You remember him, gentle listeners slash readers, uh, if you remember the episode we did about that or read the issue, and Shatterstar remembers him, but Domino doesn't because she wasn't on that mission and X-Force does not document their code. God damn it, X-Force. Either that or they document and don't file. She's a little unclear on that, and I could really see it going either way. Anyway, this was the guy who had a great big beefy body, but it turned out he was a little weak amphibious mutant inside. I actually super want to read Boom Boom's mission notes. 
Oh God, they would have little drawings, wouldn't they? Yes, and they would be delightful. So anyway, because as you mentioned, Jay, this lab has kind of the worst security. A scientist named Dr. Crispin just sort of shows up out of nowhere and hands them the data thereafter. This is this is a bit of uh, AI fanciness called the intellect chip, which ties into a much larger problem. And in fact, Richter and Warpath are in the suburbs of Memphis trying to investigate another part of that. They have been staking out the house of a, a guy who works at Strong Industries, and uh, they finally decide it's time. They blow out his tire and use a future camera to take pictures of the inside of his briefcase while helping him fix the blown out tire. So we have some data from a lab, we have some data from uh, some guy's trunk, and Cable takes that data and meets with Forge. Okay, before we go to that point, though, I want to talk about Richter's hair, because Richter's hair has become just aggressively majestic. I aspire to having Richter's hair. I, I do everything I can. No, like, it's swirling upward. It's ridiculous, and I love it. The higher the hair, the closer to heaven. Okay. Anyway, Cable and Forge, uh, who don't have particularly tall hair, meet up for dinner and they're comparing notes about these new Sentinel programs. Because as you may remember, X-Factor back in Fatal Attractions visited a place called Camp Hayden, where they found that the Sentinel project was being reactivated. Whoops. I really love seeing the different teams work together, especially in this case, their leaders. Like, one of the things I've always loved about having multiple X-Books is that they're all clearly part of the same universe and stuff is clearly going on simultaneously with all of them. And the fanboy in me just loves this kind of overlap. I like the incidental uh, detail that Cable is a huge foodie, which I absolutely buy. Oh yeah, he's great. And he, you know, wears very natty suits sometimes and he's a lawyer. There's so much we don't know about Cable. I mean, I guess we do, but, uh, you know, people don't. We're, we're podcasters. We're the opposite of people. <laughs> yeah. Wait. Aw. So in this conversation, I also want to point out that Cable uh, tells Forge he's, he was sorry to hear about Madrox's death, and I appreciate that they remembered to touch on that. I will say, though, it's a shame that we don't get to see Siren react to it, and to a lesser extent, Boom Boom, because they were both on the Fallen Angels with Madrox, and Siren and Madrox, or at least one of Madrox's dupes, were kind of a thing back then, and I don't think that's ever addressed. I mean, they were both on the Fallen Angels with one of Madrox's dupes. Still, though, you know, they, they had a friendship and romantic relationship and stuff. I guess the dupe is technically also dead. Yeah, yeah, it's very sad. So Cable and Forge talk about this chip, and Forge freaks out because this technology shouldn't exist yet. Like, it shouldn't be even feasible for it to be developed for at least 25 years, if not more. I like that Forge's powers combined with his like, just technical know-how, enable him to accurately estimate how future this technology is. Yes, I, I love that too. So, what this means, though, is that we've got future problems. Someone is meddling in the timeline, and as we know, only Cable and Rachel— Okay, so only Scott and Jean's kids and variations on them are allowed to do that. And so, back at Camp Verde, after Siren has some brief emotional resolution with her dad, Banshee, Cable rallies the troops. They have a mission. They have to take out the Nimrod Project before it goes online decades too early. Because it could cause mass destruction. And Siren makes the incredibly salient and completely accurate point that there, there's also a massive stockpile of atom bombs, and maybe they should address that issue at some point, too, if they're going to be going after the Sentinels. They don't. Anyway, Cable basically blows off that question, um, or, or answers it with, with what really feels like some nonsense, and goes on to, to brief the team on Nimrod. The original Nimrod prototype appeared in this time note a few years back, having traveled here from its own future. It took human form and was taken in as a border by this man, Jaime Rodriguez. Here misspelled as Jamie Rodriguez. It served as programmed perverted sense of peacekeeping functions for a time, as well as confronting the original Hellfire Club. Somehow, its programming appears to have been co-opted by the Master Mold Sentinel model, and turned into an amalgamation of the two individual units. The X-Men and Dazzler were able to defeat it by sending it through the interdimensional portal called the Siege Perilous. Unfortunately, because so few records from the next century survived into my time, I can't show you the worst of it. I can't show you how squadrons of these creatures systematically purged thousands of mutants. 
Okay, um, I hear you, Cable, but are you just gonna completely gloss the part of this where Nimrod's pal found a magic necklace and a fish and sent New York spiraling back into the Hyborian era? Cause that happened. I forgot about the fish. Oh, that was weird. Well, and that was specifically the dude Nimrod was living with. Anyway... Yeah, that was a thing. Um, after Cable gives the group yet another lecture on stealth, X-Force breaks, briefly kind of quietly-ish, into Camp Hayden to get rid of some potential Nimrod. And I would like to happily point out that the incredibly specific timestamps from early X-Force are back. And they're still not that relevant. So, instead of preventing the development of Nimrod, their plan backfires massively. Specifically, it jolts the in-development Nimrod into consciousness, and with it, a bunch of code is activated that the scientists in charge did not load into it. Yeah, so apparently what happened is that the Nimrod that came back from the future, before all that Master Mold Siege Parallel stuff happened, injected a bunch of its code into government computers, basically creating a sleeper agent program so that when the Nimrod project was started, it would then be accelerated with a bunch of future technology that the scientists didn't even intend to put there. That's convoluted, but it's also kind of awesome, and I am so here for this time travel nonsense. Yeah, yeah, no, this is some some well-done time travel nonsense. And then they fight and fight and fight and fight for, like, half an issue. I like that at one point Nimrod refers to X-Force as genetic miscreants. He sounds like such a cranky old man. Like, get your genes off my lawn. (laughs) Yeah. So Cable uses his just-redeveloping telepathy to have a talk with the scientists and with Nimrod inside Nimrod's mind. And my favorite part about this is that Cable can't get in at first because Nimrod is shielded with, you know, future stuff. And so X-Force blows off one of Nimrod's legs, and that's how Cable gets into Nimrod's mind. So remember, the way to a Nimrod's brain is through his leg hole. I, I assume through any serious structural damage, but this reminds me of, of the waiting for the trade strip um, about Magneto's helmet and telepaths going in through the face. Yeah, yeah, you could totally do that. Or uh, I guess you could go through Juggernaut's uh, helmet through the eye holes. I don't know. It's magic. Magic is weird. But Magneto's helmet isn't magic. It's true. It's just made from the miracle of magnetism, which is sort of magical. Anyway... Once he's gotten himself and the friendly local scientists, um, who are, are as shocked by this as everyone else, into Nimrod's mind, Cable gently points out that Nimrod's prime directive is to protect humans, and a lot of extra humans are going to die if Nimrod starts the war early. It does all these calculations, and it's actually kind of cool. We see all these examples of how many human casualties there would be for Nimrod taking out different teams in different cities, hypothetically, because of course it's going through all of these scenarios. And my favorite contrast, though, from all the examples is that it'll cost 2.7 million human lives for Nimrod to kill Firestar in New York, and it'll cost two human lives for Nimrod to kill all of Excalibur on Muir Isle. So what I don't get is why Nimrod doesn't just prioritize based on this, go kill Excalibur and then shut itself down instead of shutting itself down right now, which is what it actually does. Yeah, it just stops. This is yet another Sentinel-related thingum that has been logicked into inactivity slash death. So I want to talk about this because Nimrod is very specifically a neural network. And... These are, these are learning AIs. They exist now. They exist in our time. They do not exist with this degree of specificity. And I think that's really important because the big breakthrough in Sentinel technology, it's not the weapons. It's not the bipedalness. It's not the adaptation. It's making an AI and making a neural network that won't go for the cheapest possible solution. Because the thing with current neural networks, current AIs, is that they are, they are lazy. Like, Computers always go for the most efficient answer. Like, if you tell a computer you need to get a high score and there's a way to do that by breaking the game instead of playing it, they'll break the game instead of playing it. You tell them you need to get across the room expecting they're going to walk and the the simplest way to do it is to, I don't know, to just grow room size. That's what they'll do. If, If there is any solution simpler than individually target and kill every mutant... The Sentinels will go for every single one of those solutions before even considering individually targeting and killing every mutant. So, like, 
I'm, I'm trying to imagine like all of the earlier fail sentinels, maybe as Boulevard Trask was developing them, who just, you know, spent days try just in the kitchen or, or, um, I don't know, like trying to individually call and check in on every human being or something. Are you okay, human unit? I just worry about you sometimes is all. Like the one who just sat there and force fed him. Oh God. Or tried to just, just sort of not force fed him, but just like shoved food at him. Oh, uh, that reminds me, Jay, have you seen the Invader Zim movie that just came to uh, streaming after like a million years of inactivity? I have not. Oh, there's a, there's a fake uh, dad that comes in for Dib and Gaz and he keeps trying to feed everyone pudding and it's delightful. Oh, see, I'm, I'm just thinking of uh, C-Lab and the, what's he eat? I want to feed him. Oh, C-Lab. That show was one big troll. And I should say, a good deal of what I know about this comes from somewhat religiously following uh, Janelle Shea's blog, AI Weirdness, which I will link to in the visual companion. She's also got a book coming out fairly soon, uh, which I am going to pre-order and I encourage everyone else to as well, because based on the blog content, it is going to be delightful. Um, She also has and has provided tools for playing with neural networks yourself, which led to me spending a really long time um, teaching a, a neural network to make... Uh, explain the X-Men episode titles, which which ended colorfully, and I, I don't have any of them on hand, but I will, again, stick those in the visual companion or make them a Patreon thing or something. They're colorful. Much less academically, although still very colorfully, is X-Force number 37, The Young and the Restless. So my stepmom used to watch uh, that show. It was a soap opera. I don't know anything about it, but the theme music has been in my head for like 25 years now. It's really catchy. Does it play at any specific times, like when you have some kind of massive personal revelation or stumble upon a long-lost twin or something? Uh, not historically, no. Uh, mostly just when I think about my stepmom, I guess. Former stepmom. This issue is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Paul Pelletier, inked by Charles Barnett and Harry Candelario, and colored by Monica Bennett. Pelletier is kind of like a messier Derek Robertson, although that messiness could also be the inks, but it's a vaguely similar style. Slightly elastic facial features, mostly realistic. I like it all right. Sam's nose is weird. Sam's nose is weird. There is that. We open with the external Saul, with his long ponytail, beard, and eyebrows, telling a story about that one time in the 12th century when Apocalypse, who apparently we find out was also an immortal external, stabbed Saul and stole Saul's celestial ship. Wait, I thought that Apocalypse was was just immortal. I don't think it was established that he was an external in this. Well, for this very specific point in time, Apocalypse is an external, which means Apocalypse just got slightly worse. So the moral of Saul's story, which he's telling to Cannonball and Boom Boom because the externals showed up at their family front door at the end of last issue, the moral is that there's always something bigger and more powerful than you. That's what he was trying to tell Apocalypse by showing him the ship before Apocalypse was like, uh, nah, I'm a stab ya. And that's now what he's telling Cannonball and Boom Boom that the externals are realizing. Mothra. Well, okay, Mothra is bigger than them. So, in this case, is the legacy virus, because Absalom, one of the externals, has the legacy virus, and Nicodemus and Burke have already died of it. You know what is way better than the legacy virus? Mothra? Yes. Legit. So, apparently, the externals are especially vulnerable to the legacy virus. All mutants are somewhat- Mothra. And Mothra. All mutants are somewhat vulnerable to it, but the externals are just, you know, going down one after another. And I actually kind of dig this. It's never specified, but Strife hated Apocalypse. If Apocalypse was an external, then of course Strife's virus would be extra aggressive toward externals. I like the idea that it specifically targets hubris. Oh, uh, I mean, that's most of the externals right there. Yep. So the externals are terrified because they've all died once. If you're an external, you only externalize uh, once you die for the first time. But they're terrified because this is like a true death. They've never had to face this before, and that's why they're here to talk to Sam, the newest member of the externals. They're hoping that he will have some insight to provide. And he kind of does. Mostly they all tell stories about how they all suck. They do. We learn that Absalom was a jerk cowboy back in the day who killed another cowboy named Caleb Hammer, who was actually a minor, like, Western cowboy character from 80s comics. Nice little touch there. 
Yeah. And then after Hammer was killed, he was put in a coffin vertically, which was then leaned vertically against a door, like propped up outside a building, like some kind of macabre display. That was a very weird artistic choice. Oh, the Old West. It was a pretty, pretty rough place. Gideon, arguably one of the worst externals, tells us that he was a deckhand on the Pinta. He came with Columbus to the New World and then proceeded to seek power, grow a big top knot, and be a jerk. I appreciate that his first death wasn't at anything dramatic, it was just scurvy. Yeah, yeah. Eh, very humbling, you would think. Is scurvy humbling? Is that a fundamental characteristic of scurvy? I thought mostly your organs just kind of dissolved. That sounds humbling. Sam is is likewise unimpressed. I'm only 20 years old, and it seems to me I've done more with my life, learning and growing, trying and failing, than any of you have over the course of centuries. And Gideon says, hey, they all brought something to the world, but it's mostly kind of bad stuff like despair and corruption. No, I love this. I love that Gideon's like, oh, I've got this. We have categorized each of the externals into their one defining trait that they bring to the gestalt shitty entity that is the externals. Do you think that when you live forever, you get really bored and just spend a couple centuries statting all of your friends up as D&D characters and this is basically what's happening here? Shit, I've only lived for 37 years, and I do that. Yeah. So, you know, you, you figure the inter- externals have been testing the system out for a while. So, officially, Nicodemus was wisdom. Burke is fortitude. Saul is patience. Cruel is yelling. Well, ferocity, but also cruel rules! So yelling. Absalom is despair. How is that a value? That's a bad value. Kendra is guile. Dun, 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 dun. Celine is corruption. Again, I question how this counts as a value. Gideon is opportunity. And Sam, Gideon says, is hope, which is why they've come to him. Wait, is Sam the Mati of the externals? Maybe Sam can be the editor of the externals and explain parallelism to them. Maybe. So they don't mention Apocalypse, but I can only assume that since Apocalypse, at least for this one issue, is an external, he must have brought, I don't know, managerial soft skills or something. Burke predicted that Sam or someone close to him would save the externals, presumably by curing the legacy virus. But that's... That doesn't happen at all. The legacy virus is eventually cured when Colossus injects himself with a thing and then explodes. Maybe they were in close physical proximity by coincidence when Burke happened to have that vision, and so when he said someone close to Sam, he meant just someone who was literally close to Sam in that particular moment. Maybe. Or, I mean, Colossus is the brother of Ilyana, and Ilyana was close to Sam. I don't know. I think I'm just going to pin this on the externals all being terrible, and maybe they're just terrible at things. Yeah, I think they're just making this up. Maybe. And Sam, you know, he's somewhat sympathetic, but mostly he just scolds them for having wasted their long, long lives on petty selfishness and only interacting with the world now when they're scared to die, as opposed to, you know, using their immortality for good stuff, for actually fixing things. Sam's contribution to the externals is basically real baseline common sense and a couple homilies clearly taken from Hallmark greeting cards. I, I... I, this is not a slight on Sam. This is just how much the externals suck that none of these were things they could work out. And Absalom, who is the one who's actively dying of the legacy virus, furiously freaks out and his powers flare because when you have the legacy virus, that's something that happens. Your powers flare and eventually kill you. And I gotta say, Pelletier does a great job on some of these panels. Like, we see Absalom's skin just stretching and tearing over more and more and larger and larger spikes coming out of Absalom. Pelletier really makes this look agonizing. It reminds me a lot of the spikes coming out of Logan during Weapon X, but, like, this looks even worse. I was gonna say, everyone in the 90s was spiky and unhappy about it. Yeah, pretty much that. But Absalom survives. Even after this power flare, he survives. And Gideon says, oh, okay, maybe maybe there is a sign of hope. I mean, he's gonna die soon anyway, but... Well, Cannonball makes the externals a deal. If they actually try to do something good with the rest of their lives, then he'll do everything in his power to help. He's not really sure what that's gonna be, but he'll try as hard as he can. And I like that he's not helping them because he's an external, because he never wanted to be an external, and he hates them all. He's helping them because... He's Sam Guthrie, and that's what Sam Guthrie does. 
They should all aspire to be Sam Guthrie's rather than externals. Actually, they should just want to be Guthrie's. Oh, yeah, maybe Ma Guthrie could adopt them. I mean, she's clearly very good at taking care of enormous amounts of children, and they're all basically big children. She's like a capybara. You can just give her orphans, and she'll take them in and raise them as her own. Capybaras do that? Yeah, cap- capybaras are really, really, really consistently good about basically just accepting pretty much anything you give them as their kids. Oh. That's why That's why so many cute, all oh, look at this cute interspecies thing involves capybaras and juven- orphan juveniles of other species. If I'm ever lonely, I'm just going to go hang out with a capybara. Maybe it'll take me in. And maybe it'll bite you on the head real hard. You know, if you're lonely enough, I guess it's worth the, worth the risk. Sorry, I, I grew up with the Bill Pete book about his family's brief and fairly ill-fated pet capybara, which was a lovely capybara, but at one point did get very upset and, and bite a kid on the head. I, it wasn't just a, that wasn't just me being like randomly capybara hostile and threatening. They, they, they are large rodents and they have big teeth and they are, you know, they're not, they're not domesticated animals, don't have a pet capybara, just love and support them from a distance or if you need new parents. So the two morals of this episode are, okay, the three morals are Richter is not Gambit, don't be anything like an external and be careful with capybaras. Um, I think you're missing one, Miles. Oh? There's always something bigger than you, and it's usually Mothra. Oh, good point. Good point. Well, anyway, Gideon is satisfied with this, and he says, hey, we've all shared our defining moments, or at least Gideon and Absalom have. Sam, what's yours? Sam's like, uh, bros, I'm 20. I'm kind of hoping that's yet to come. I'd like to think, Gideon, that maybe it ain't happened yet. Gives me something to strive for, don't it? Gideon's like, well, fuck. I guess we should all maybe stop living in the past all the time. But I'm not cutting off my ponytail. I really appreciate that Nisieza can take the externals, some of my least favorite villains, and craft a really good issue around them, because this is actually a pretty damn good issue. It helps that Cannonball is one of the best X-Force characters. Yeah, I mean, the externals, I, I do love the idea of them as a group of people who've basically forgotten how to person, because if there is anyone you should turn to for for a model for that, it's it's, it's definitely Sam Guthrie. Like, he's he's very good at personing. And so the externals all head off, carrying Absalom's spiky but still alive body away. And Cannonball and Boom Boom, Sam and Tabby have a moment. And Tabby's like, so hearing you talk about this, I'm realizing you being immortal and me being not, like, that doesn't matter. We're just people. And you know what? I love you, Sam. And Sam's like, I love you, Tabby. And they kiss. And it's wonderful. And I know they're not together in continuity anymore. And that's that's fine. No, Not every relationship has to be forever. But 90s Cannonball and Boom Boom are just goddamn adorable. Yeah, it's not a bad kiss either. Uh, it, this, it, it's not an Andy Kubert kiss, but it's not too shabby. And so those are our four X-Force issues. And the next time we revisit X-Force, it is going to be the Phalanx Covenant. Yay? I really like the Phalanx Covenant. I don't know. Oh, I do I, too. Yeah. Uh, it's got its flaws, but it's fun. I just feel bad for the characters. Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, terrible things happen to the X-Men. Those are the best X-Men stories, when terrible things happen to the X-Men, and then when they occasionally briefly get a reprieve from terrible things happening. Valid point. So, meanwhile, you have questions. Maudlin Pryor, hey, that's a great name, asks on Tumblr, in the Atlantis Attacks New Mutants Annual, Boom Boom says X-Factor is hers and Richter's guardians. Any chance they were legally on paper adopted by one of the O5? Who do you think it was? Okay, so I don't really think that without Cameron Hodge that X-Factor had their shit well enough together to legally adopt a kid. But if it was someone associated with that group, I'm going to go ahead and say it was Ship. I feel like Old Angel actually would have done the paperwork, but he was Archangel at that point and he was way too mopey. No, Old Angel would have gotten someone else to do the paperwork. Specifically, he would have gotten Hodge to do the paperwork, but Hodge would do something evil with it. Evil with it. That may be true. And Gene and Scott were probably too distracted at this point by the child they were already endangering, and Bobby and Hank probably each thought the other would do it. And and eventually, Opal Tanaka was just like, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. They they basically look after themselves, right? <laughs> So, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, have you listened to the Wolverine podcast? And if yes, what do you think? 
So I haven't listened to the podcast, which is called Wolverine the Long Night. I think they just announced a second season, which I don't recall the name of right now. Uh, Stitcher Premium sounded expensive. It's got premium in its name. I don't know if it actually is. I heard season one of the show is free now. I got to say, I, I was put off it for very similar reasons. I, I thought about it. I thought about shelling out for it. And I realized that there were two conditions on which I would pay for a Wolverine podcast. The first would be if it were about Laura. And the second would be if it were just Logan having his own podcast where he just talked about weird stuff. <laughs> and my understanding is that it is neither, and so I have not listened to it. Well, okay, that said, while I didn't listen to the podcast, I did read the comic book adaptation. There was a five, I want to say, issue miniseries that came out around the same time, and it was actually really, really good. Like, it worked super well as a standalone Logan story, specifically because it was from the perspective of a couple of federal agents who were tracking Logan in, like, this small northern town and trying to figure out what was going on, whether the murders that were being done were actually being done by him and just who this guy was. It remembered that Logan works really well when he's this mysterious, scary question mark, when people are looking at him from the outside, because Logan is dangerous. You know, we always see him being nice to teenage girls and stuff but the fact is if you don't know logan if you're not his friend that dude is scary and it worked really well um also marcio takara's art was really really good in it so there's that which again full circle makes me wish it were about laura yeah <laughs> there is that so uh i can't speak to the quality of the podcast although i have heard it's good but i will say the comic adaptation was actually pretty excellent and i would recommend that now we are not on Stitcher Premium. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic goes to Apocalypse, who may or may not be an external. It is the most fundamental law of the universe that only the strong survive. And yet, for centuries, those whinging weaklings known as the externals have somehow persisted and have had the audacity to count apocalypse among their number. They are not strong, merely badly ponytailed. Yet some are deserving of their immortality. Mike Gropman has spent centuries in the planet's outer core, crushing both the region's moloid inhabitants and the molten iron and nickel that dare oppose him. His subterranean might marks him as worthy. And John Plowman, ill-content to merely observe the mayfly lives of humanity, has spent these millennia interacting with the strongest the dating pool has to offer in ways most intimate. Perhaps it is time for Apocalypse to create a new horseman of romance. And perhaps Apocalypse shall ask John for advice on his OkCupid profile. For N. Sabanur has received very few messages. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode and neural network-generated podcast titles. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, tune in for the return of Doug Ramsey and or Warlock. It's complicated, as usual. As usual.